Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, in the early days of modern computers, the Simulmatics Corporation, an until now mostly forgotten company, manipulated computer technology to mine data, affect the news, and influence voter and consumer preferences. Sound familiar? The tech titans of today have formidable ancestors. As historian Jill Lepore reports, the men in charge of this endeavor brought a madman-style swagger to the burgeoning digital universe. In other words, they drank a lot and ruined marriages adeptly while working the numbers game. Among other boasts, the company, quote, claimed credit for having gotten John F. Kennedy elected president, unquote. Lepore's new book is If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future. The story of the rise and fall of Simulmatics sheds light on how the digital machinery that now runs the world was first employed with less than ethical means. Jill Lepore is a professor of American history at Harvard University and a staff writer at The New Yorker. She was interviewed by fellow historian Margaret O'Mara, a professor of history at the University of Washington and a contributing opinion writer at The New York Times. O'Mara is the author of The Code, Silicon Valley, and the Remaking of America. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on September 18th, the day Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. So I wanted to, um, we're here to talk about your book, um, but I wanted to um, just at the very beginning open up with the news of this afternoon that Judge Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died um, at the age of 87. And you have a beautiful piece that's now on the front page of the New Yorker um, online um, that folks can go and check out um, after this session um, that, that talks about her and her life. But I just wanted to invite you to, if you've uh, written about her and thought about her, what, what do you think, what are you thinking about this, this evening and then how this relates to, you know, where we go from here? Um, you know, it's a, it's not a wholly unexpected passing. It's a tremendous loss to the country, uh, to the rule of law. Um, I think it's an opportunity to really pause and think about what public service really is and the kind of dedication that Justice Ginsburg gave to the cause of justice for the whole of her days. You know, I mean, I had been thinking about, you know, she was born when Eleanor Roosevelt became first lady. You know, that's a tremendously um, important span and a career that really is unrivaled in terms of seeking and institutionalizing and constitutionalizing equality between men and women before the law. And I, I um, you know, I, I I I bristled a bit and have bristled a bit about the celebrity and the sort of celebrityification of Justice Ginsburg, and I, I I guess I suspect she was herself somewhat uncomfortable with it, and it it it, it has always struck me what's strange about that is how few uh, female intellectuals are public figures, um, and the desperation with which I think you know, mothers of young girls kind of hung on to Ginsburg as this, you, you know, becomes a kind of bobble doll hero. You know, you want the button and the the coffee mug and the t-shirt and there are so many ways to appreciate the kind of uh, intellectual and political and legal work that she did um, that I hope that that kind of deeper appreciation is, uh, and I'm sure it will be uh, what is offered up in the coming days. Mm -hmm. um, the tragedy of it, you know, just for me, and I, I suspect for a number of people who already been, you know, shaken by this news is how swiftly this will move from an appreciation for this American's tremendous contributions as a public servant to a, a political battle of terrifying ferocity and general idiocy like it's just really i don't really, like like we have a few moments to pause and you know in this kind of john lewis moment way 
Yeah. And then we all then we all know that this pile of bricks will be pushed off the top of a building that we're walking by and will crush us uh, with the grotesqueness of our political discourse. So that's an uplifting place to start, <laughs> Margaret. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I, I think we probably, by the end of this conversation, will sort of arc back to the, the political now. Um, but let's go back to, let's, let's go to, to your book, um, which came out this week. It's just terrific. Um, it's Mad Men meets Silicon Valley. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I just wanted to understand, you know, how did you come to this? Why, why, how did you, what drew you to the subject and how did you find this company? Uh, which is an extraordinary story that hasn't been told before. Yeah, and and I think you know, as your work has shown, so much of um, the story of Silicon Valley hasn't really been told before. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people have the experience of reading your book, The Code. But every page is is a revelation. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that happened, and I didn't know that's where that came from. And they really did that then, and. Um, so much of that is, you know, there just really hasn't been work in that field, but also, um, you know, the sneaky guy in the movie who's like trying to escape through the woods and he's walking and he has like a broom behind him and he's erasing his footprints as he goes. That's kind of how I think of Silicon Valley. Like these guys are so committed to the idea that they have no past, that they're constantly yeah. erasing it. Um, you know, it's really important to be like, Ta-da, I just showed up here. Like I was here and I'm brilliant. I didn't, I never had a mother or a parent and I just have these brilliant ideas. Give me money. Like I just yeah. like, that's kind of how I picture. Okay. So maybe that's unfair. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There many many good people who do this work but there's the mystique the cult of uh of, of the silicon valley the male genius um uh just you know the kind of peter Thiel, like just pulls it out of his head um like elon musk like it, it, i don't know just they're, they're kind of the the the, the fetishization uh, it's a kind of recycling of you know the 19th century man of progress now uh, the kind of edisonian notion right like that the, the, the suddenly the cultural heroes and in in the United States and in, in the latter decades of the 19th century were these men of progress um, or you know I was thinking about how a 1960 time times man of the year is the men of science <laughs> it's like okay I guess like we'll just You're, worship you um, yeah. so I I mean all of which is a long-winded way of saying like there isn't we we, we don't as I think in the public in public discourse have much of a history for um, the kind of work that's gone on in Silicon Valley, you know, maybe from the 19, from the 99, 1990s forward. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always been really curious about that. And um, I came across this story when I, I had an assignment in 2015 um, to write an essay for the New Yorker. I was asked to write something on the history of public opinion polling. This polling was seemed totally out of whack. Like this was well before this was during the primary season mm -hmm. when the polling, like the number of polls that were doing was like crazy. It was like an exponential growth from, you know, the, the previous midterms that just was the polling industry has gone crazy and polling had become quite um, unreliable. Everybody knew that polling was really unreliable, but you mm -hmm. could still make a lot of money as a polling company. So the industry was booming. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, it became clear to me that even though it was booming, it was kind of its last gasp because it's being replaced by data analytics, predictive analytics stuff. Like, why would you, you know, hire a bunch of college interns to call random strangers and try to get them to answer questions over the telephone late at night when you can just figure out what people believe by tracking them online? Yeah. So the, then I got interested in, like, where did that turn happen historically? Like, I just didn't, like, I see the history of polling. I see where polling is now, but there was, like, a missing piece. Um, and I, I heard about, I, I read something about this company, the Simulmatics Corporation, uh, that was known for having um, provided uh, an election simulation to the Kennedy campaign in 1960. And I did, you know, what any historian would do, like, where are the archives of this company? <laughs> there are, oh no, there are no archives of this company. That's both good and bad. Like, A, now I can't find anything out, but B, no one else could really have done this either. You know, yeah, that kind of yeah. thrill you get. And then I, um, I went to MIT where the papers of the leading scientific uh, figure in the organization had been deposited by his widow. And most of the papers were there. I mean, I found a lot of other stuff else in other places. Um, and it was just, you know, I remember I, I sent an email to my editor kind of summarizing what I had found. And he said, and I never, I, I never ignore his advice. <laughs> 
just said sort of cryptically, perhaps there is a book in there. Um, <laughs> and I thought, oh no, because I don't really want to write about a you know, pioneering data science company. Who yeah. would want to write that book? Yeah. Um, but then it got really interesting. I'm sorry. Yeah. If I answer your questions with at such length, we're we're never going to get through the evening. So I'll give well, quicker I, I answers. What's great about your taking on a data, first of all, historian taking this on, and that you're not a historian of technology per se, but you're showing this company and placing it in political context and social context and talking about who these people were. And there's, you've got some great care. It's a great subject because you've got great characters, right? You get, you have the people who are carrying this story forward are, 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 <laughs> just you can't you can't make this stuff up <laughs> yeah. and yeah. uh yeah. i mean they're 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 extraordinary who um who was uh i mean were there any kind of big uh you know moments in the archives where you're like oh, i you know look at this uh, uh yeah there were a bunch i mean one was um so the guy who from a columbia sociologist who really kind of did the original work, the kind of mathematical modeling of voting behavior that is the, the heart of the code that runs this machine. Um, his wife named Minnow McPhee um, was fascinating to me for a whole bunch of reasons, but um, it turned out that she wrote home, she was from Colorado and she was living in New York and raising her very young children while also working as a nursery school teacher to pay the bills because her husband was in graduate school trying to build this voting behavior machine. <laughs> and she wrote home uh, with great frequency and these incredibly colorful and deeply incisive letters. And her granddaughter um, had collected them all from different members of the family and transcribed them all. And so there came a day when she just sent me this document of this transcription, like hundreds of letters from, uh, you know, the incredibly, brilliant and much beaten down wife of the one of the most important scientists of this company. It was just really thrilling. I mean, it's, a, it's such an act of trust when family members give you correspondence or, you know, mm -hmm. um, and there, you know, there was something in every letter that was meaningful to me. Um, the kind of stuff that, you know, when you're working biographically, you're desperate for like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the day that, that, you know, the de the little detail, like, all the wives at a kind of company retreat where they kept passing around Peyton Place, which is this kind of steamy, sexy, controversial novel from the 1950s. And it's like, of course they did, but like you can't make, you know, like you literally can't make it up. Like you want that detail to, to, to have these women be real people. Um, yeah. And uh, so I was just so grateful for that. Um, but the thing that was a real wow moment for me was when I was um, reading through the Adlai Stevenson papers at Princeton, um, and I came across a letter that Newton Minow, who was a good friend of Stevenson's and had worked on his campaign as a very close advisor, uh, had written after he was learned about this project to to provide provide campaign advice by way of an election simulation. Um, and he wrote to the Harvard historian Arthur Schlesinger to, to express his concern about it. And he's like, look, this clearly should be illegal. It's certainly immoral. And I also don't think it can work. And it, it just kind of jumped like it. Like, you know, basically he's being sent a proposal for Cambridge Analytica kind of thing in <laughs> 1959. And, you know, he's a good, he's a good and upright and moral person. And he's also just like a no nonsense person. He just looks at it, he's like, we shouldn't do this. Like, this is wrong. Um, and everybody ignores him and it gets done and like it creates the <laughs> world that we live in now. But it was, it was piercingly interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. And the Newton Minnow of the, the vast wasteland of television, who later. Yeah, wrote, Newton Minnow. <laughs> yeah, he gets, yeah. To, he goes on to be the chairman of the FCC, appointed yeah. by Kennedy. He yeah. gives, he has three young daughters. They watch a lot of TV. He spends a day home, like when the kids, girls are sick, watching TV with them. And he gives a speech to television broadcasters. Like, Sorry, like Gilligan's <laughs> Island. Have you people watched this thing that you're putting out there? Like, you know, he's responsible for basically the creation of PBS and later yeah. NPR. Like he's yeah. an incredible show. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's the guy with his head screwed on, right? Yeah, yeah. 
I well, so I love you know sort of the 1960 Kennedy campaign as the sort of the opening you know the the kind of the, the big the big break that Smallmatics has right. Um, and I thought it was so interesting too thinking, I mean, anytime you put the tech in context in the sort of political context and remind everyone that these these worlds have been interconnected for a long time, um, I think we get new insights from that and and. You know, you write about how the Kennedy campaign, well, kind of, it was a stealth operation for the Kennedy. I mean, the Kennedy campaign was not saying, look at our amazing computerized strategy, which is such a contrast to, um, you know, think about Obama 2012 or 2008, right. 2012. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. we're, we're, we're so advanced because we're using these, these data analytics to um, to run our campaign and to target effectively. I mean, what does that tell you about the politics, you know, how politics, what what do you think, what insight did you get into the Kennedy era through, um, through, you know, looking at how this company, you know, what it wanted to do and what it actually achieved? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing to remember by way of like a large scale timeline framing is that when we talk about a computer in this era, 59, when they're doing the coding or 60, when they're providing the service, we're talking about a mainframe computer, you know, that occupies a giant room, the size of, a, you know, the floor, entire floor of an office building kind of thing. Um, when we're talking about Obama, like by then there are smartphones, right? Mm -hmm. So it's well past personal computing into the, you know, the, the smartphone and the mobile phone, the mobile computer phone. Um, so in the era of, you know, the late 1950s, there's an incredible cultural anxiety, like as no one knows better than you about computers and their power, because they, they, they are owned really, you know, by the government, the Census Bureau has a UNIVAC, and by giant mammoth corporations. And so, um, you know, in an era that is deeply concerned with brainwashing because of communist propaganda, they seem to be too powerful. Like in the kind of man versus machine way, the machine is this giant electronic brain and, it, you know, it kind of feeds into all this kind of science fiction stuff or um, fears of automation and the replacement of workers by machines. Mm -hmm. Just very different from, by the time of Obama, people are like, I'm liberated by my phone, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, it's not true, but like it's in fact the revert. Like the smaller your phone gets, the more dangerous computers are. Yeah. But but people kind of perceived it upside down, right? Like it's yeah. like these these giant hulking things that we look now like, what's it really going to do to you? <laughs> look yeah. at that computer. Um, but but it was scarier. They were scarier then. I think people, um, you know, put a phone in their a computer in their pocket and they think it's not hurting them somehow. But if it was big like Hal in 2001, you know, you see that fear all the way through the 1960s. Yeah. But the other thing that I, I um, your question brought to mind, which I haven't talked about at all. I don't think I talk about the book. I had an idea that I would talk about this, but you would have be a person to have interesting thoughts about this. I came to be really interested in how, so these guys were programming mostly in Fortran mm -hmm. and, you know, formula translation, like, like they're, mm -hmm. they're just trying to figure out because um, they're trying to get a computer that can do mathematical work, right? So all of their syntax comes from mathematical proofs, right? So that's the if then of, you know, or the go to, um, like they're just line by line commands that come from math. And yet they, what they're aspiring to do is move toward an artificial intelligence. And so I just kind of got really interested in how what could be done by way of advice for politicians or manipulation of voters was constrained by the syntax of the language itself. Mm -hmm. So one thing you can do if you have a computer that can do a lot of calculations and run a pro like you can infinitely, you can simulate in infinite possibilities, right? Like that's, that's a thing you can do. If this, then that, if this, then that, like if Kennedy says, yes, I am a Catholic and I, you know, and I, and I love the Pope, but I would not obey him versus then this happens. And if Kennedy doesn't say that, then this happens. Um, and that you can, you can test out those simulations on different possible voters, which is how the program worked. They divided the electorate into 480 voter types. And then they, they ran simulations across 50 different possible issues. Like if that, which just happened like that, that's what they did. And that that actually is still what is done mm -hmm. is an artifact of what Fortran could do when it was written in 1956. Uh -huh. When, and, and its legacy is we have micro targeting. We have a, an electorate that is divided into demographic mini units who are told that our interests are all oppositional to one another. Mm -hmm. Like 
in a certain kind of way, like, did the fact that if then statements were really easy to use in 1956 mean that now we have this super hyperpolarized polity? Do you know what I mean? Like, is that, yeah. that's a thing I've really wondered about. Yeah. Like as a, and as a weird unintended consequence of the constraints of computer languages from yeah. the 50s. Somehow we're still stuck in that, you know, in that code. That. Well, we're constraints of, of the binary, right? The zeros and ones and either or, and the engineering thinking that I think the, the protagonists of your story exhibit, which is that if we have a computer, we're gonna, you know, the answer to your political problem, the answer to your social problem, the answer to X is the, is the tool, the computer, then it was not every desk, but later that, that techno-optimistic framing gets morphed into, you know, the computer shrinks down, it becomes individualized, we get connected by, by wires, these are going to be, this is going to be the, the mechanism. And yet, you know, look, co software coding is a very, you know, it, it, it is a, it is a binary, right? If you have a, if you don't, if you have a bug in your code, you know, you have to, you have to have a sequence and everything has to, and, but when it works beautifully, it works beautifully, but it's very linear and it's very clean. And, you know, this, of course, the, the cult of the engineer has always been you know we had this, the man of the the man of the year the scientists of 1960 morph into kind of the modern day engineering first culture of of technology companies large and small where the engineers are the the gods um, and mm -hmm. and it you know the messiness of politics, the nuance of voter behavior, of the fact that we might not be binary, that we might fit into one demographic group, but not also, but not necessarily all think the same way, mm -hmm. is a really difficult thing. And yeah, computers, you know, the simulations still operate on that. They're much more complex. They're much more sophisticated, um, but they're, they're, they're much more dangerous that way. I think you're right. I mean, we get when we when they were these massive machines. Um, you know, there's always been this interesting combination of fascination and fear with which we've, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Americans in particular have approached technology. And one of the things I loved, um, and actually it was sort of a crazy rabbit hole. That one thing I didn't write about as much in in the co in my book. Um, we all have those. You know, every you write a book and there are things you don't, just like you said, there are things you didn't write about, um, was this broader debate about privacy that went on in the 60s, which you talk mm -hmm. about in mm -hmm. um, kind of the Kennedy and Johnson years where, you know, what are the computers, what are, what is, what is the government trying to do with computers and how are people pushing back against that? So you, you, you move, it isn't, you move through the 60s and then this, the action moves to to Vietnam, well, moves to great, the Great Society in Vietnam. Um, can you talk more about how this, you know, again, these these characters, what they did, how they appear, and how this these computer simulations were being applied by the government in these other contexts? Yeah, I mean, so it's important to remember again, just to have a sense of perspective on what a data science company looks like in this area. <laughs> the Cinematics Corporation never had a computer. Like they, they, they that, that's just an expense they could not have borne, and really, there weren't like a lot of computers around. They rented computer time. Um, so just to, it's a small corporation that's trying out a lot of things. And to me, what's significant is how how they really do try out everything that now is the kind of the foundation. So I'll just kind of run quickly through what, so they do this election simulation for, for, the, for the Democratic National Committee and then the Kennedy campaign in 1960. Then in 61, they begin uh, doing kind of consumer simulations for companies like dog food or shampoo or toothpaste manufacturers to say like, we have a, we have a, we have created an imaginary uh, representative body of American consumers and we can, we can test mess, test product messages on them and advertising messages on them. Uh, that's fairly successful until all the big ad agencies get their own computers um, right around about 1962. Uh, they all realize like there's a way to do this. They don't use the same program that Simulmatics is using, but everybody figures out this can be done. And even though um, a lot of industry people say, yeah, it's just bullshit. Like you could, I'm still gonna tell you which of these ads is a better ad based on what I think. Um, they can charge their clients a lot more if they say they have all this data behind their, uh, you know, their ad campaign. Um, then they work for the New York Times. They do uh, try to accelerate election coverage on election night. Um, that project does not go well. And partly as a consequence of that, 
they, they've been looking all along to get contracts from the Johnson administration, first the Kennedy and then the Johnson administration to do, these guys are all really devoted liberals. Um, they really believe in civil rights. They really believe in what comes to be Johnson's Great Society program they want, which is very data driven, right? Johnson's, uh, Johnson's programs require a lot of economic and social data. Um, and so they do some of that work, uh, but then the company's really failing and one of the scientists is a really committed cold warrior and very pro McNamara. He's a defense intellectual, really believes McNamara is the, Johnson's uh, secretary of defense, the former CEO of Ford Motor Company, a big systems and computer guy. And so Simulmatics opens up an office in Saigon where they're really doing, again, they don't have computers, like the Department of Defense has computers in, in Saigon, but they're collecting, um, they're collecting data by doing interviews uh, with Vietnamese peasants. And they're trying to come up basically with a model of the Vietnamese so they can understand what messages would be more persuasive. But they're also evaluating a big computer program uh, that the Department of Defense has, um, the, the Hamlet data system in Vietnam. And, and then when they come back to the U.S., uh, they work for the Johnson administration's Kerner Commission studying race riots, which is kind of all of this work is sort of consistent in that. Um, you know, the, the big project of the Cold War, when you step back and think about it, other than the arms race, the, the, what was called the mines race, right, was how to figure out how to win the ideological war by coming up with a model of human behavior so that you could figure out what messages to send perforated through the iron, through the perforated iron curtain that could change people's minds. And in order to do that, you needed to have a prediction of human behavior that that was mathematical was kind of the idea of behavioral science in, under the terms of the Cold War. So all of these things like figuring out, trying to counter an insurgency and, you know, counter a communist insurgency or predict a race riot in an American city, they're all kind of part or persuade a voter to vote Democrat instead of Republican. They are all relying on the same basic set of ideas about human behavior and the quantification of human behavior and the reliance on these um, you know, highly um, self-mystiquing kind of work of these, you know, the, the computer men. Uh, and, but all of which does involve like a, a great deal of aggregation of data, which is causing people a lot of anxiety uh, in the United States. There's a great deal of anxiety about how much data the government has about you. Um, so... There are privacy concerns. They're not. They don't directly impinge on Simulmatics's own work because of the kinds of that it's working for. Um, but it's it is absolutely swirling around the story that I tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it's about the government. The government is the bad guy too, which I think is so interesting. You know, like yeah. you said in '62. I mean, the during the '60s, you know, all the direct marketing companies they're all using industry is using this micro targeting as as or as micro as you can get with a mainframe, and yet the Privacy Act of, you know, all the various legislation that comes out of this moment, the, the notable one being the Privacy Act of 1974, which is all about computers, but it's all about government computers. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and industry yeah. is, um, you know, is just let off the hook. And yeah, which is why we are where, we, where are. we get where we are. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did an episode of my podcast um, about the debate in 1966 and 67 about the National Data Center. Um, and I interviewed Arthur Miller, the great legal <laughs> scholar who he testified before the Senate over uh -huh. the, during the National Data Center hearings. So um, just for people that don't know the story at all, um, uh, we have the Library of Congress, which holds books, and the National Archives, which holds manuscripts for the Johnson administration and proposed a, a national data center to hold and then make, um, nor and sort of normalize all the data across federal government departments from the Social Security Administration, Veterans Administration, everything. And it seemed like a good idea. It was also necessary for the implementation, arguably necessary for things like the Equal, you know, equal Opportunity Act. Like you needed to be able to have neighborhood information about economic discrepancies across neighborhoods in order to, uh, or, or you need to have voting records, like to, to implement the voting rights, like we actually needed to collect a lot of data to do these great society things. Um, but during the hearings, people really freaked out and thought the government would use, it. people said, 
the only thing that's protecting our privacy is that the government has billions of records about us, but they're all scattered across Washington. And so they can't, they can't really know anything. And this guy um, from Rand came in, the guy who developed packet switching. And it's a pretty hilarious part of the hearings because he kind of, it's like you could kind of picture him looking at them like the way Zuckerberg looked at Orrin Hatch that time, like of like Senator, we sell ads. And, and Barron's is like, I'm sorry, are you guys thinking, are you talking about building a building to store data? Because it doesn't matter whether you build a building, like we're connecting all the computers up. Like we don't need a building. Like yeah. pretty soon the data will just be in a cloud. Like, I don't think you understand what computer data is and what the storage issues are because we're turning commuters into communications devices. So here's what you should really, I don't care whether you build a building or don't build a building. It's kind of a stupid question, Congressman. But <laughs> here's what you should be doing is, and I hope you are doing, is thinking about regulations about who owns data and how it can mm -hmm. be used. Mm -hmm. And because this will be like probably your last chance because we really, um, the horse is going to be out of the barn really soon. And Arthur Miller, who, um, as a very young man, testified before the Senate, and he said, oh, yeah, it's going to be destroy people's privacy if you build the National Data Center. And so when I interviewed him, he said, like, Jesus, I mean, by 1971, we realized, like, what were we thinking? Like, that was our <laughs> last best chance to have any kind of rules about data, you know, because then you get to 74, and it's, like, all about the government. And it's like, but, like, if there had been government guidelines were self-adopted, yeah. you know, in 67, 68, or, you know, yeah. um, it would have set up a framework for, you know, governance over and regulation of corporate owned data. And it just never, because people just kind of couldn't get their heads around it, which I mean, yeah. I'm super sympathetic with, but um, you hear, you know, you see people who are in the know, like this MIT guy, who's the chairman of the research board of Simulmatics, who says in 1968, you know, in 50 years time, I could sit at my desk and I could, I could find out anything about anybody without ever leaving the room. Like all the computers will be connected. I could find out anybody's criminal record, their high school transcripts, their employment record, whether someone in their household has ever been on federal government assistance. You know, I, I could find out anything that it, 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 just to let you know. But um, I'm not sure that we sh I should be able to do that. And it's we'll have to see what they think. And it's like, wait a minute, why didn't you figure it out? Like, <laughs> you guys had figured it out. Like, why did you just kick that can down the road? Like, we haven't figured it out. It's 50 years ago. Couldn't yeah. you have done like, so it's kind of, it's fascinating to me how I kept bumping into that, like with the new yeah. minnow letter, yeah. like people who were like, oh, this could be pretty bad. Yeah. I wonder what will happen. And then they keep doing it. I know, I know. It's, it's, uh, yeah, the more you look at the, the, you know, the, the history of this, the computer privacy debate, the more, more you're like, oh, well, the horse like left the barn so long ago, I should, you know, not yeah. worry so much about my iPhone settings. Um, I'm going to turn to some of the quest some questions that are coming in from the audience. But before we do that, I really, I really want to bring in the, the women in this, the story in your book and talk more about gender in tech. Um, this is a very, you know, the 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 men behind this company and the are and the politicians who are who are kind of making choices about these things. It's all white men, um, and yet there are there are women in this story too. And kind of what I mean, what do you think this longer history helps us see about the terrain of gender and and tech over the long term? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the sexual politics of the 1950s faculty marriage are very terrifying <laughs> to get close to. Like if you've ever seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, the Edward Albee play. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of that, like they're drinking, there's, there's affairs, uh, it's people are brutal to one another. Minnow McPhee writes to her mother, these men try, treat their wives like dirt. I mean, she's just, she's just shocked. And she's in a very terrible marriage herself. Um, but these look even worse to her. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're very smart women with completely thwarted, uh, intellectual ambitions. Um, a, a number of them go back and finish their education. Almost all the marriages fall apart, except, except for the MIT professor who has a very strong marriage with a woman who has a PhD and has this incredibly interesting, uh, marriage of, uh, of a partnership, but th that's the exception. All the other marriages, pretty much all the other marriages fall apart. Um, and the families fall apart, many of them over over Vietnam. Uh, but the, you know, the the bad bargain is, uh, you know, the men pursue with a, I think, very um, 
kind of painful ruthlessness, like painful to them. They're great, and like the whole culture is telling them they're geniuses all the time, yeah, which is kind of you know a crazy burden that you know I can't imagine. No one ever thought I was. You know what I mean? Like the the idea that someone would expect stuff of you is bizarre to me. Um, but they're very much um, baffled by their wives and their children, and it comes across in their correspondence. Um, you know, it's a very, you know, it really is that madman world, right? And you see the Betty Draper <laughs> like explosive inwardness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's that. And, and except that these men are going out to build a machine to, to understand how humans think and feel and would behave. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand their wives and they don't understand their mm-hmm. children. And, and some of this is this irony is not lost on people like, um, Minnow McPhee has a sister-in-law, you know, who, who who's always writing to her husband, to Minnow's husband, Bill McPhee, you know, who's the guy who really wrote the code, saying like, he, your whole work is about this, trying to like predict human behavior. You cannot even predict what your wife is gonna say to you because you, you don't understand anybody in the world. Like you just don't understand human beings. And there's something about that that just mm-hmm. feels very painfully resonant with a certain sort of, Silicon Valley figure today, mm-hmm. um, you know, a kind of isolated individual, uh, you know, a, a certain kind of man who's uncomfortable with women, um, maybe doesn't feel, you know, may have a family, may doesn't feel like he totally gets them, um, much more comfortable with machines and coding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's fine. Like there's, you know, a thousand flowers shall bloom. People can be, you know, in many different ways. But should you hand the tools of our communications infrastructure to those particular people? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's that. Like it's like that. It's it's that. That's that's crazy making. And even in cases where you know Minnow McPhee had studied um, child development, which was a new field, a really exciting revolutionary field in, in the 1940s, and um, you know, if you've ever spent time in a nursery school or talked to a nursery school teacher, there's there's not really another category of person that better understands human development and can predict human behavior than a nursery school teacher. And yet that is not knowledge, like to these people. That is like that is the most demeaned and pathetic of things. Um, and she knows that. Like anytime she 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 goes to sometimes sit in on the seminars. And she says, I just, you know, I don't have a PhD. I don't understand this stuff. It's like, you know what? You do probably understand it. You probably understand that it's crap. <laughs> like, but she doesn't have the confidence. Like, um, yeah. so it's, 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 it's anguishing, you know, to see, um, you know, here are all these guys trying to get a, a computer to think like them. Uh, and they have this, you know, this rational choice model of the social sciences at all actors are as in like well that they come to believe that you could get a machine to think like a person because their model of who a person is is themselves it's like they're trying to build a machine that is mr spock or something (laughs) like as opposed to any like the idea that the human mind is metaphorically a computer is to me an absurdity but to them it seems altogether natural uh, and, and that has to do with that particular sexual politics of the era. And we yeah. live, we're, we live in that, you know, they were trapped in the machine that they built. Yeah, but it, but it persisted. I mean, the, there's so many parallels to the uh, sexual politics, obviously, of the early, of early Silicon Valley. Plenty of, plenty of women in tech then. They were just mostly the wives who were staying home, making sure everything else worked. Um, and also the women who were on the assembly line and doing all sorts of other pretty pretty critically important jobs um and all, and all the immigrant women building all the electronics yes, yeah yeah, yeah. It, was a, I mean, it was a manufacturing industry for a very long time i mean that 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 it's a you know you had your guys were doing software kind of before it was an, an industry um and and silicon valley itself was hardware until you know through the 1980s really pretty much mm-hmm. um uh you know it's interesting too thinking about the um you know the of course the personal computer industry comes from a movement of a personal computer movement of the sort of late 60s, early 70s of a generation that is kind of against the, um, 
you know, the Vietnam generation, this is the Vietnam generation that's push, pushing against the Simulmatics generation um, and and wanting to, and interestingly that, you know, a whole cluster of a subset of that personal computer community in the Bay Area was focused on education and particularly early childhood education. Men and women who were like, this is going to be, computers are going to be the tool to revolutionize education. And we're going to, this is going to be extraordinary. And they really, first of all, there's part of that becomes commercialized that at the education business, computers and schools is a very big um, chunk of business for companies like Apple then and now. Um, but it, it really, you know, those those idealists and particularly the women who some of whom were teachers, but uh, but men and women who were teachers who were really interested in using computers and integrating that in education in a very progressive way, they kind of fall out of the picture. You know, they aren't the ones making the companies and making the bucks. So it's a sort of this, the what if moments. I think there are a lot of what if moments in your book that, mm -hmm. that come out that, um, so we have some um, sort of questions. One of the you know questions that are coming in, thinking about this sort of connection between you know these the raw data and the biases of the people who are designing the the software and the hardware, and then um, you know a question about kind of. I'm going to kind of answer and you, you ask a question that's um, kind of interesting about models. Models are created by humans, so we do not understand ourselves enough. Um, uh, what, what, how, how the sort of models don't predict elections. And I think one of the, th you talk in the book about how, um, I think if I'm remembering correctly, that, that, you know, the, the Cinematics does work for the Kennedy campaign. A lot of the things that they, that their model predicts actually turn out to be campaign tactics that Kennedy, you know, uses and and are are seen as instrumental success. Whether those were the th the reasons he the campaign did that is is you know not necessarily clear. Um, but the the belief that a model that you can kind of plug information into computer and actually how it plays out. Why you know we don't we have a lot of examples from Smilmatics all the way to Cambridge Analytica that it's not really clear that all of this privacy intrusion <laughs> and this data stripping is resulting in, you know, providing the results that that the models predict. So why do we keep on doing it? What is the, what is the fast, why the fascination with these tools and these machines? Why do they have such a hold on, on, um, on how so many things operate and why is the answer off, often a technical one? Yeah. I mean, I do think a lot of it is snake oil and, you know, this, you can just, sell this stuff to people who are desperate to figure out how to gain an advantage in a campaign, whether it's an advertising campaign or a propaganda campaign or a political campaign. Um, so I, you know, I myself, I'm not. So I, I don't know enough to know, for instance, did Cambridge Analytica really make a difference um, in the Trump campaign or in the Brexit campaign in 2015? Uh, I, you know, I, there is research there, but I, I, haven't, I haven't looked at it. I don't have a, a, a ready, a ready-made answer for that. Um, I certainly think a great deal of it is is bullshit. Like, like if you read the like, um, you know, the stock offerings of all kinds of predictive analytics companies, the stuff that they promise to be able to predict. Like, I'm just like, really? I I don't think so. Like, but I, people will buy it because mm -hmm. they're scared. Um, Uncertainty is difficult. We have made a vast cultural turn over the course of the 20th century to um, really believing in prediction. Uh, you know, I was sitting on the back porch this morning with my husband and we had like, we have a new puppy who peed on the rug and we had the rug in the backyard. And I said, I think it's gonna rain, we should bring the rug in. And he said, it's not gonna rain. And I looked at the sky and he looked at his phone <laughs> and I was like, it's gonna rain. He's like, it's not gonna rain. But like, we, you know, that, that, <laughs> We really, we, we expect things to be predictable. Um, it's some, it's some piece of the, I think, you know, profound despair of this moment is not just the loss and the grief and the suffering, but it's the uncertainty, the, 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 the just a continued uncertainty. I mean, between the, all the climate change stuff that's going on, you know, the terrible suffering and the pandemic and the political chaos, um, we, you know, we have grown very accustomed to having a pretty good idea of stuff that's going to happen next. And I, and I don't think we generally do have that pretty good idea. But meanwhile, I think we haven't attended to the way in which the expectation that our models are accurate is itself potentially 
a poisonous one. And this was the big critique of somomatics in the 1960s, a political philosopher from the University of California, Berkeley, Eugene Burdick, who had been asked to work for the company and had declined, wrote a political dystopian novel about the company. And his point as a political philosopher, a political theorist was, the real problem with micro-targeting voters with your message is that's not our, how a republic works. Um, we are actually supposed to cast votes that are in which we exercise our civic virtue and think about the common good and the common wheel and the public interest. And if the only messages we ever get are directed to us personally and our own personal and private interests and individual experience of the economy and society and the political order and the laws of the land, then we will cast bad votes. Mm -hmm. We will we will come to hate our fellow citizens because we'll consider ourselves to be on, always in com competition with them, person by person by person, for the securing of our personal interests. And while that is part of a liberal democracy, the other part of it is all of us are also supposed to be thinking about everyone. And what will happen to political discourse if all of our political campaigns are run by simulations that work on the, you know, on the hyper individual level, that that's just corrosive of our, the very nature of our political system. It's completely inconsistent with it, right? It's a little bit like Uber deciding we can provide faster, cheaper ride service. And someone might've said, even at the time you picture someone in the board meeting said, wow, it's gonna really screw up pollution and traffic. Like you guys are gonna destroy cities. Um, but they'd be like, yeah, but that's not, but we can deliver faster and cheaper uh, travel services. Like you kind of picture like someone at the cinematic scene, but wait, this is completely inconsistent with our system of representative government in a republic. Ah, but we could get really good at election advice and sell it to a campaign for money. Like that, it's that moment that, uh, and, and you know, in so much of, you know, your work and people who are critical of, of, of some of the, the ethical stuff in Silicon Valley, or, I mean, you know, Facebook is by far the, the, the biggest, you know, the gorilla kind of case here, like not having any concern for, all the incredibly irreplaceable institutions that will be destroyed uh, mm -hmm. by the by the pursuit of this business model. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we still live in a world where that's how those decisions are being made. Yeah. That that your comments there really wrapped up. I think a couple of uh, several of the questions that that, I, that are out there about this question of how what is the consequence of atomization and and where does the republic go from here? Where does the world go from here? Um, and, and maybe kind of to sort of wrap us up and bring us together, um, thinking about these, you know, yesterday there was a, the White House had a conference on American history um, in which the president announced formation of a commission to kind of, to, to talking about sort of a patriotic education for children in schools, but really this, we're in the middle of a debate, not only about, among many things, among other things, we're debating our own history. And this question of sort of a grand, a story that brings everyone together is is very alluring and and I think probably essential. I think one of the things you show in this book is the slicing and dicing um, does not does not achieve the sort of, the, you know, does not get us where we need to go and it has a longer history. So what are your, you know, kind of take us out on a, can you take us out on <laughs> some, some words of, you know, just thoughts of, you know, thinking about the coming together after the splitting apart, what, what would be required and, and where might tech fit into that story? If, yeah, and, and yeah, or, that's uh, a really, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I try to steer myself towards something about coming together, but I was struck, <laughs> you may have read um, the same stories about climate change scientists um, offering their sympathies to epidemiologists saying, now you guys know what it feels like to have done like, in, you know, your life of research and the, and people who have vested interests um, have discredited your work, even though your work is, you know, very well established. Um, I feel sometimes like the historians could say to the climate change scientists and to the epidemiologists, we know your pain, like we have been there for a really <laughs> yeah. long time. Like the history wars go really far back. Um, you know, the attempt to have the federal government decree what is the true story of America is, is, an, is an evergreen. And, and to do that is to deny the integrity of historical inquiry as a humanistic discipline. We have, we are a discipline with the method, like there are things you discover in the archives that tell you things. And there are things that, you know, other historians have deliberately ignored that have, you have to be found and, and brought out and told. And, you know, the same way that there is evidence of 
you know, glaciers falling into the sea in the Arctic, or, uh, you know, the numbers that the CDC is reporting are actual real numbers. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's kind of useful and maybe helpful to understand that, you know, what what we had maybe thought of as a separate set of uh, political campaigns of intellectual evisceration, um, you know, a kind of a particular agenda to destroy the authority of the university, to destroy the authority of science, to destroy the authority of the liberal legal academy uh, and, and, and liberal uh, courts. Um, to destroy the authority of the press and a free and independent press. Like history is just like one of those things on the list. And now also so, so are the biological sciences and the earth sciences. So I think that's a lot of people mm -hmm. <laughs> who can actually come together. And I think that, um, I think the case uh, it, it desperately needs to made, be made and can be made uh, that ideas matter that um, that it that it that it counts to stand up uh, and defend the integrity of your discipline to the public. But I think what has been you know made undeniably clear is that uh, people who work in higher education need to be out there defending people who do K through twelve education uh, and standing uh, standing alongside them and not let you know Trump beat up high school and sixth grade teachers to do some kind of flag waving nonsense. That's just, it's an, it's a non thing, this commission, it's not an actual thing. There are actual things, you know, there are people who are suffering, there are stories that need to be told, there are books that need to be written and read. Uh, and there are zoom calls that need to come to <laughs> come to a close. And there are town halls that need to be, you know, uh, resettled and, and, and places that need to be kindled and nurtured and supported. So I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight um, and uh, for your support for uh, this town hall, this organization and this bookstore. Uh, it, it, it really makes a tremendous difference and it's a time of, 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 of great severe crisis for the world of ideas and um, everything that you do really does help. So, and I also just want to thank you, Margaret, because it's been super yeah. fun. We should talk this more. Really fun. This is great. <laughs> you should take the show on the yeah. road or on the Zoom road or something yeah. like that. Town Hall Seattle presented this talk with Jill Lepore earlier this fall on September 18th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org. Just click on the podcast tab. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.